Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at the Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are discussing the topic, history. What is it good for and why? Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what does history mean to you as a practicing historian? Uh, History to me means the past. It means how we tell stories about and interrogate the past. And it means the trust between the generations, the sense of an awareness that we are part of a process of continuity and change through time. Uh, How does publishers in the world outside of academia influence the practice of history? Oh, well, I think that's a really excellent question. I think, first of all, it varies enormously by country, so that in an authoritarian society where the government, um, uh, as it were, allows only a range of history to be on offer, then clearly publishers have to conform to that. And indeed, publishers may well be a branch of the state. But if what we are talking about is a the alternative to authoritarianism, which is liberal free market capitalism, then clearly publishers have a much greater range in, within which to operate. Um, they are essentially drawn by uh, their view, their perception of what is likely to be commercially attractive. And therefore, in a way, Um, in a way, history in a capitalist society is a counterpart to democracy, because just as democratic politics is designed to try and offer the public a view which matches in part what you think they are going to um, elect or might elect, so the same thing is true of publication. You're trying to write something which you hope is going to be commercially viable. How did uh, Leopold von Ranke change how history, um, I'm sorry, change how historians did history, if at all, in your opinion? Well, that's yeah, interesting. I mean, just the benefit of listeners, Frank um, was Prussian. Prussia was the uh, country that becomes the genesis of modern Germany, um, it, capital Berlin. Ranker was the most prominent historian at the university in uh, Berlin. And he essentially developed a tradition in German historical scholarship of source-based criticism. Uh, In other words, of uh, criticizing theses and ideas based upon an analysis in detail of particular texts, the criticism or exegesis of those texts, and using those with which to examine, as it were, grander ideas. And that was, in in his eyes, a contrast with more romantic conceptions of history as a process that, as it were, floated above any such vulgar need to address real issues and what people had really said. 
So rancor can be seen. I mean, you know, we, this is quite simplified, but rancor can be seen as a materialist response to the idealistic um, uh, romantic philosophy of German thought in the late 18th and even more early 19th century. Um, paradoxically, in a sense, rancor although very different in his politics he was, um, and in his patri- in the patronage he receives, Ranker offers a sort of counterpart to Karl Marx, another distinguished German of, uh, uh, who was around at the same time. Now, uh, I think it's fair to say there had been earlier practices of history which also looked carefully at historical documents. One can think in particular of the antiquarian and local history traditions. One can think of a lot of ecclesiastical uh, history. One can think of the exegesis of classical documents that you see, for example, with some of the leading Renaissance uh, uh, commentators. But nevertheless, um, in terms of academic scholarship, I think it's fair to say that I mean, you take, so shall we say, England, there had been um, uh, two universities um, uh, prior to the 19th century, Oxford and Cambridge. They both have chairs in modern history from 1724. And neither of them, I think it's fair to say, were particularly distinguished or necessarily always noted for their uh, focus on source-based history. And I think with the German model in the late 19th century, the spread of the German model, I mean, Rankert's really a mid-19th century writer, but the spread of the German model helps to produce what is referred to as scientific history. So in America, it comes in in particular through its influence in the University of Chicago, uh, in Britain, I think it's fair to say that amateurism remains very strong in Oxford and Cambridge, but a kind of scientific history comes in much more clearly at London, at the universities of London and of Manchester. So you would say that, in essence, um, uh, Ranka is very much a different type of historian than, say, Macaulay or Gibbon. Um, well. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, and Macaulay and Gibbon are, are different to each other. I mean, Gibbon is, is, is in an 18th century tradition of presenting universal or world history, as you, as you will know. His book is widely held to be on the decline of the Roman Empire. It, in fact, is a history of the world up to the 16th century. Uh, and much of its interest is actually relates to his treatment of the medieval period. Um, and, and Gibbon is one of a number of prominent 18th centuries. Another one is French scholar Voltaire, for example, who are trying to write universal history that is not around a Christian chronology or paradigm. Uh, Macaulay um, is a, from a rather different tradition to that. But yes, you are correct in saying that although both Gibbon and Macaulay um, are uh, aware of the importance of uh, individual documents, neither of them are scholars who devoted their time to extensive archival work. I think that's a fairly safe remark to make. 
Um, and I have the greatest of admiration for Gibbon, I ought to tell you. Understood. Uh, how, if at all, has history as a discipline changed in the past 100 years? Well, uh, that, well that's my starter for three, as it were. Um, right. Um, well, let's, let's go for several different, uh, several different ways of looking at it. First of all, I think we would allow for variety around the world. We'd allow for variety by um, political system. I think what one would, if one was looking at it as an educational uh, matter, history has in relative terms become less consequential because of the relative rise uh, at school and university level, college level of any type, of the sciences and also of what are termed the social sciences. So that whereas history in the late 19th, beginning of the 20th century would have been regarded as one of the principal academic subjects, um, its ability to present itself or the ability of its academics to present themselves as people who are offering something that is a form of knowledge that is useful and can be applied, while historians tend to think they've done that, it, most of the rest of the world hasn't noticed, as it were, uh, their rather um, sometimes self-serving uh, declarations. Now, so history as a part of education as a whole has become less consequential. History as an as a aspect of general literature remains very important. I mean, particularly, though not only for male readers over the age of 40, history and biography are two of the principal types of books that are categories of books that are purchased by them. Um, and history has a very strong following on um, television and as you know the very fact that we on the New Book Network uh, look extensively at history reflects a strong interest on the part of listeners so there is a public world of history generally very poorly served by university academics uh, many of whom sort of go on very narrow and often very um, ideological uh, trips um, uh, then if we look at other um, other aspects of history in the public world, there's an enormous interest at the moment in genealogy, um, which is one that, again, has been very much helped by uh, television coverage, very much helped by uh, uh, Internet uh, usage. Um, and there is paradoxically, one might say, in societies which predicated to thinking about the future in terms of technological change and in terms of uh, economic um, transformation, nevertheless, are still very much reverential um, to aspects of the past and referential to the past even more so. So you wouldn't say that... Uh history reaches a pink I'm sorry peak of its influence uh, around the turn of the or beginning of the 20th century you mean about 120 years ago yes that's right uh, yes I think that that would be fair I mean as I said I think since then uh, I mean 120 years ago I think history was regarded as very central to education a lot of prominent, they were mostly men, uh, a lot of prominent men of affairs, as it were, politicians and such like, had studied history or were aware of it. 
Uh, I think that is less the case today because, as I've said, a history is now much more of a discretionary element in education systems. Actually, I was thinking more of the fact that uh, history as a discipline, uh, whether uh, professionally or um, in, by amateurs, was important because of the nationalist project, which um, becomes almost worldwide by the beginning of the 20th century. Yes, that's that's interesting. Yes, I mean, I think certainly in political terms, history was very, very significant then. And um, I think blood and soil nationalism is very much historicist. Um, and I would agree with you. Um, I mean, I ought to say there, there is no blood and soil nationalism at the present day. I mean, um, if you think about... Um, um, for example, uh, you know, Scottish separatism or Catalan separatism, they're often based about or drew, draw heavily on a narrative of supposed hardship that has occurred in the past, rather than simply focusing on the situation at the present day. Yes, I, that I definitely would agree with you. And of course, the other example would be, or examples, or uh, authoritarian states where uh, history as a discipline is um, employed as a uh, means of uh, propagandizing the population. Yes, I mean, for example, a good, a good, good instance at the present moment is Turkey, where under Erdogan, there is an in, a very strong uh, neo-Ottoman uh, presentation of Turkey as having a destiny to be a leading, if not the leading figure in the Islamic world. And there have been television series about, um, you know, Suleiman the Magnificent, I remember when I last visited Turkey, uh, observing a very large public mural which depicted in stone the areas that had been under the Ottoman Empire at its most, uh, at its widest, plus a bit. Um, so you see that. You can see another instance of a very strong uh, historicized nationalism in a different context, you could argue, is being taken in modern China, where um, the, um, the uh, in place of, for example, an ideology that you might call radical left, you have an ideology of a kind of um, modern imperium, a kind of progressive China, but with its territorial aspirations very much encoded in what are presented as um, established, historicized um, Chinese territorial dominance over Taiwan, over the South China Sea. Um, and an historicized antipathy to Japan and to the idea that when China was weak, uh, Western powers, America and Japan all benefited from that in order to exploit the situation. So I would say that the ideology of the Chinese state is very much that way. Um, now, I mean, if you look at India, India has a democracy, um, but the um, uh, Modi government is very much pu pushing a, uh, a Hindu historicized nationalism in which the idea is that there is a 
traditional long established uh, um, process in which India was invaded from outside by Islamic forces and that uh, India has only been strong when, as with the Maharatas, so they are presented in the late 17th century or Mr. Modi today, uh, there have been um, Hindu nationalists who have sought to, as it were, to use that kind of classic or cliched image, stem the tide. Um, so these kind of historicized nationalisms are very, very common um, and play, I would say, quite a significant role in at least the public presentation of politics. President Putin in Crimea is another instance of this. When you were starting out, which historian, if any, most engaged or influenced you? Uh, when I was starting out, at what age? I was an odd and rather inconvenient child. I mean, you know, when I was about six and seven, I was going to the local public library and taking out um, history books. <laughs> so, uh, I would actually so, say when you were in university. Ah, when I was in university. Right. Um, well, it, when I was at university, I went, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge and a postgraduate at Oxford. And um, I was, um, as an undergraduate, I was fortunate to go to one of the only two colleges which had a director of studies, chief historian, who was a medievalist. And I did a lot of, I did a lot of stuff on medieval history. And I was very taken by the um, close packed textualism of uh, looking at documents. Um, and I was very fortunate. Uh, my director of studies, Jonathan Riley Smith, who was a crusader historian, fixed up that when I did my Norman further subject, Norman England further subject in my last year, um, he arranged for a woman called Marjorie Chibnall, who was an elderly um, scholar who was most famous for editing Orderic Vitalis, the great chronicler, to sort of just to teach me. So I would go along and spend two and a half hours um, once a week uh, of an afternoon, plus an extra half an hour for tea. And we would talk about, about the Anglo-Normans as if they were her personal friends. And she would provide me with print, uh, proof, print, sorry, printed proofs of forthcoming volumes that she was editing. And I also, in my last year, uh, spent a lot of time in the university library uh, reading doctoral theses, which I found a wonderful corrective to the often very mediocre standard of the lectures offered to undergraduates. You know, you had a sense that when you were reading doctorates or when I was with Marjorie Chibnall and looking at um, printed primaries, um, you had a sense that you were, as it were, closer to the cutting edge than the than, than what was on offer. And I'm, you know, I'm often struck. I mean, I've recently been reading because I have to write a review of it some particularly mediocre books about the history of the British Empire where none of the authors seem to have spent even an afternoon in an archive and I, I to me uh, archival history is an absolutely key element because and you need inspiration to encourage it because it's hard work people need to be told you go in you can spend a day's reading there, and you might have a better general idea of a particular subject person individual or instance but you might not you know <laughs> the archival sources can be elusive difficult etc etc or can require a lot of elucidation 
But I was very fortunate in that, in that respect. But if you're asking me great historians, well, you know, there were some prominent historians uh, when I was an undergraduate. Um, probably the most prominent in Cambridge was Sir Geoffrey Elton. And there were some prominent historians when I was at Oxford. Um, I suppose uh, Keith Thomas and Trevor Roper would be the most prominent. But I have to say, uh, I actually found much more satisfactory to be looking at archival sources, reading printed primaries at the time, rather than listening to banal remarks from, uh, you know, they, they might opine on. Understood. What does history as an intellectual discipline have to say to us today? Well, I mean, I think different historians would give you different answers. And also, may I say that people who are not academic historians are just as well qualified to, if they, you know, if they've thought about it, to offer their views. So, um, oh, and also just one last thing. When I referred to Trevor Roper, Elton and Thomas, of course, I ought to distinguish Elton was a distinguished um, archival historian. It's just that many of his lectures didn't necessarily show that. The other two were not. So let me just make that clear. I'm not trying to run down Elton's reputation. Um, if you are um, uh, looking at it for the present day, I mean, I will obviously give you my viewpoint. I mean, my viewpoint is that history is a marvellous tool for understanding complexity, for understanding what I would call a three-dimensionality um, of, uh, well, I suppose if you want to add time as the fourth dimension, uh, but the idea being that there are different interpretations that are possible, that you cannot repeat the experiment so that you cannot be definitive, that you have to understand nuance, that you have to understand the contrast between people, what people say and maybe what they think, uh, and, the, and neither of those are necessarily clear-cut abstractions. Those, to my mind, are all very important aspects of history. But I would argue, unfortunately, that there is very much poor history. And I would include that being done from within the academy as well as outside the academy. And that this is often what I would refer to as two-dimensional. People will often have, as it were, envisaged an outcome in advance. And if they're academics, that generally is the outcome that they think is going to attract the grant-aiding bodies that will fund their research or that might help them get promoted. Um, and they will often... Um, sort of, as it were, select um, evidence accordingly, or indeed not trouble with evidence and just simply argue by assertion. And I think that um, you and I know that there are many uh, academics we can uh, refer to today, some of them holding positions of some considerable power and influence, who essentially, one would argue, argue by assertion. I remember absolutely being very struck in the early 1990s, a you know, a major Cambridge figure of the previous generation, he told me that he'd looked at one of my books and couldn't understand why I had spent so much time uh, in the archives over it. He said to me, I had last set foot in an archive 10 years ago and I never intend to go in one again. Um, and actually, the man's gone on writing and, you know, I can see that seems to be very much the case. Um, and, you know, I, I, to me, you know, some people would argue that that is the way forward, that having, you know, you don't want to be um, held back by, by the limitations, because there are limitations of 
of primary sources, because after all, not everything is covered by them. And there are issues of intentionality in terms of why people say something. Uh, they're often they're not a palimpsest, a mirror of reality. But nevertheless, I think the very fact that they are complex helps to avoid one making grand statements about the nature of the historical pattern. Are you worried that today's cultural warriors, whose mendacity is only succeeded by their ignorance, will ruin history? Um, well, I think certainly I am not in favor of of, of what you are talking about. So I agree with you entirely. Would it, I mean, there are several different levels of, of would it ruin history. Will it uh, affect the nature of history as an educational tool? Well, it already has done. Uh, I myself um, would be very wary about suggesting to anybody that they go and do a history degree at any institution which says that it is decolonizing its syllabus because the nature of the past is too complex to be to reduce to a formulation of the present. So I think that's already happened. Do I have more confidence in the public as a whole? Well, yes, I do, actually. I think that there is a lot of reluctance to uh, be pushed towards the false consciousness which is offered by um, these um, so-called intellectuals. So yes, I um, I would be, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm a democrat. I believe that that means that people often can choose to do things you don't want them to do. But nevertheless, part of democracy is that you accept other people will make uh, poor choices. What I find disappointing is when the, you have people who are anti-democratic who take over institutions and then seek to use either those institutions or the practice of politics to limit the opportunities and options for the members of the public as a whole. And I think that is going on. I mean, positive aspects, well, positive aspects is, for example, it is, po it is possible, thanks to new technology, um, for people like ourselves uh, you know, to discuss something, for that then to be offered uh, through the internet and other means to a large number of people who can then listen. Um, so that in a way, whatever is the folly uh, at particular educational institutions, it doesn't need to constrain um, uh, us excessively. But yes, do I worry? Yes, I think I do worry. I think it's become bizarre. I mean, you know, at the present moment, uh, if you look around the world, um, and, you know, different listeners will have differing points of view here. But at the very crudest political level, you can see uh, that places like Myanmar or Belarus, there are active suppression of democrat democrat democratic tendencies at the present day, same in Russia, for example. Uh, and yet, uh, there are people who would be much happier to ignore that, or for that matter, to ignore the plight of many Africans in wars at the present moment, for example, the current civil war in Ethiopia, which Eritrea has come in on. Um, and they'd rather be uh, offering tendentious remarks about the past, uh, which, as it were, empowers them uh, in, in a sort of politicized present. So, Yes, I am. I am concerned about it. I can only hope that its political traction with the public as a whole will be limited. Any last thoughts, Professor Black? Well, I think that some of the points we made at the very outset could do with a little bit more of 
of deploying. I mean, I think this contrast between public and private history is one that is worth thinking about. All listeners will have what I would call a private history, a private history to themselves and their family, but also a broader community private history, notions about their relationship with the previous generation being absolutely fundamental to that. Then separate to that, I think there are the different kinds of groups that offer and sometimes seek to control what I would call public history. That's not necessarily a bad thing because it's important when we're trying to locate ourselves that there are uh, opportunities given to, uh, to people, to individuals, to communities to consider, as it were, their relationship with their past. The problem is when you try and close down those options and limit them. So, for example, if you're thinking about Germany in the 1930s, if you're at the beginning of the 1930s, there are a number of different uh, historical narratives on offer. There are politicized ones um, from the uh, extreme left to the extreme right and all stages in between. There are um, institutional ones uh, of a very varied sort of institutional fabric of Germany of that period. There are regional ones, ones of localities, and some of those are politically encoded, and some of, the, some of them are just expressions of uh, regional um, difference. And then there are the vast range of private and community ones. Now, one of the aspects of the, uh, the Nazi seizure of power in 1933, and it's the same with other authoritarian seizures of power, the communists in the Soviet Union, for example, what becomes the Soviet Union, is that this range is closed down dramatically. Occasionally, attempts are made to co-opt uh, aspects of a broader uh, pattern. So, for example, you know, you're in, the, in Germany, uh, the Wehrmacht has its historical tradition. Um, the Catholic Church has its historical tradition. You try and Nazify them. But more commonly, you just try and get rid of the groups or exponents of those who have a different history to the one you offer. And in that context, you end up with a desperately impoverished politics. I mean, you know, there's a whole host of things that you can say about the viciousness um, and uh, megalomania, destructiveness about the Third Reich. Uh, one of the things that's most, I think, worth commenting on is also it's absolutely profound uh, intellectual poverty and poverty and cultural poverty. I don't mean by that that there were were not um, some cultural figures or artistic figures within it. But what I mean was that the idea of variety, the idea of debate as means to uh, advance a, a subject, to offer individual or different interpretations, um, that was lost the notion almost of, if you like, a Hegelian notion of let us entertain both a synthesis and a, sorry, a thesis and an antithesis, and then we'll see what happens about binging and bonging between them. This is lost. And I think you could see that as a way in which um, historical consciousness exists in modernity. You have, on the one hand, those societies where there is a willingness to accept 
established a public and a private space for these very differing interpretations, which may be to some people, even to the public mythos of that society, dominant one, inconvenient, damaging, um, but to understand that part of being a mature society, part of being a democratic culture is that you have those viewpoints. And on contrast, there is the authoritarian precept and practice of arguing that there is a correct answer and that other viewpoints should be closed down. Now, the closing down can take different viewforms. It can be the literal question of throwing people out of windows or, you know, putting them into uh, detention camps and murdering them. Or it could be the starting off things like just, you know, not promoting them, not appointing people of that type, not giving them grants, etc., etc., now, what I would argue is happening, and I do not regard this as overly alarmist, I actually have, you know, can see it going on, is that the broader pattern of what I would regard as a fair-minded debate is one that is closed down in large sections of what would consider itself the progressive West. Because once you have a notion that there is a correct answer. You know, obviously, at the present moment, a lot of that is to do with agendas, to do with so-called diversity or whatever. A lot of it is to do with a kind of critique of the West. Uh, a lot of it is now moved from just critiquing the West, capitalism, etc., to actually attacking what are, to what are termed enlightenment values, or enlightenment values, as you and I know. Enlightenment had lots of contradictions, but one of the points of the enlightenment was that one of the key values was that of debate. Um, once you start, and, and fact-based understanding, once you start moving beyond that, then in practical terms, you're taking part in a different form of authoritarianism to that that is practiced in the more ruthless states that we could mention. And in my mind, it is highly troubling. Now, I don't think we are seeing the end of history as we know it, as a, a, a matter conceived of in the West in terms of debates. When I was a, a child, you could listen to sort of Sussex tapes and hear historians with different points of view de debating matters uh, in a way that now I think would be far less common or accepted because, of course, uh, those views, some of them would be regarded as unacceptable. So I'm not saying so much we're seeing an end of it in that type because what I do notice is that beyond the academy, there is an active public world which is less impressed by the uh, often narrow and illiberal notions of so much uh, academic uh, culture. But nevertheless, it is a troubling matter, and I'm not really impressed by what is going on. And it, is go it has been gathering pace farther and faster than I had envisaged. So, you know, I used to think it would see me out, the, the idea of, of history as a subject of debate in which you could hold unpopular views, in which you could still be respected for the scholarship that you brought to them and for the cogency of your academic argument, sorry, your intellectual argument. I'm no longer convinced that is the case. And I'm not saying this is a tone of a, a grumbly old man. I actually am still somebody of 
who I'd like to think is of great vitality and uh, and working actively in the subject, but I am not so impressed by the uh, context of the academic world as a means of taking forward our understanding and elucidation of the past. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you.